doing a series through the book of Ephesians, and so we're going to read God's Word together, and we're going to look at chapter 1, verse 15 uh, to 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, uh, and the words are on the screen behind me uh, as well. God's Word says this to us this morning. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. And I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every well, over the last uh, few weeks, we've been deeply encouraged as we've been uh, looking through uh, this letter from Paul uh, to the Ephesians, and we've been thinking about the spiritual blessings uh, that are ours uh, in Christ. And we've looked at these verses, and we've discovered how God has chosen us uh, before the foundation of the world, how He has loved us, how He has pursued us and called us into a relationship with Himself. And not only has He called us into this relationship with Himself, He's made it possible for us to come to Him. Even though He is holy uh, and we are sinful, He has paved the way for us to come to Him uh, through the redeeming work of Christ on the cross. And we've looked at that spiritual blessing of redemption, uh, of forgiveness of sins that we're going to be celebrating uh, when we take communion this morning. We've seen how we have been reconciled uh, to God, how we have been adopted into His family. Uh, And last week, we just thought about this great inheritance uh, that we have in Christ Jesus that Christ has been given all things by the Father. The Father gives generously to His one and only Son, and yet as we are adopted into the family of God, so we become sons and we become daughters of God as well. And that great inheritance that is given to Christ is also shared with us, uh, and our hearts marveled at that. And we discovered that all of this Uh, is only possible uh, in and through Christ. And we noted the repetition uh, of that phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. 
And here in Ephesians, this uh, first 14 verses of chapter 1 is just this one sentence in Greek, and it's almost as if Paul's heart is overflowing to God, pouring out praise and worship to God for what He has done for us. And Paul wants to call us to comprehend all that we have in Christ. And so he tells us all that God has done for us in these first 14 verses. And then as we move into the second section of chapter 1, verse 15 to 23 this morning, here comes Paul and he begins praying for the Ephesian church and he's praying for us. And he's praying that what he has taught us about, what he has tried to help us to comprehend and to understand that that would become a living reality for us, that it would be something that we would experience in our day-to-day lives as Christians. And so, this is the prayer, that what we know in our heads might move to our hearts, and it might change and transform us. And so, we're just going to look at these uh, wonderful verses this morning. And the first question we want to ask is, what is the mark of people who are in Christ? Here is this call from Paul that our lives might be in Christ. And here we come to the text this morning, and we ask ourselves, what are the marks, what are the characteristics of people who have truly given their lives to Jesus, who are found in Christ? And we read these words. For this reason, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Two of the things that should mark the people of God, those of us who believe in Jesus, should be a deep faith and a deep love for one another. And this is not just an idea that is here in Ephesians. Actually, there's a third idea that is uh, listed as well as we go through the epistles, and it's here as well in Ephesians in verse 18, and we'll look at that in a couple of moments. In Colossians 1, it says this, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, that faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. So, as we look at the New Testament, and we see Paul writing letters to different churches, he is commending them for certain things. Primarily, their faith their love for all God's people, and their hope that is in Christ. Those are the three things uh, that mark out the true people of God that should characterize a community of God's people, and that is the same for us this morning. And a deep faith in Jesus should show itself in the fact that we have a love for one another, And that was incredibly important for the early church as we look at Ephesians and we look at the body of Christ 
newly forming, we discover these people who would never have associated with one another before, drawn from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different classes in society, suddenly sitting around and sharing this common meal of bread and wine together and declaring together the hope that they have in Christ. And one of the great witnesses of that community would be not only their faith in God, but the love that they shared with one another. And we see that in other places in Scripture. 1 John chapter 2 begins by saying this, we know that we have come to Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys His word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. I could preach a whole sermon on those verses there. The idea is that coming to Christ is not just a tick box exercise to get our salvation. The thought here is of the Lordship of Christ, that our lives are fully surrendered and submitted to Him. And here we start to see the first marks of that, that if our lives are fully surrendered to God, then we are a people of God who have faith, who keep His commands, who obey His Word. And the amazing thing is that as we begin to live this out, so we grow in our love of God. It's an expression of our love for God, and our love for God is made complete because we're living in a way that pleases God. And then as if that wasn't hard enough, then it says this, this is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. wonder if you've ever noted that verse before in the Bible. We claim to know Him, we must live as Jesus did. Wow, that's a challenge for us this morning, isn't it? To look at Christ Jesus and say, am I living as Christ did? First thing I want to say to you about faith is that it's a kind of supernatural gift. This is not something that we as God's people can do on our own. And we need the help of the Holy Spirit to live in this way. And I think we could all hold our hands up and recognize that. We're no different to society around us. The difference is that the Holy Spirit lives within us. And we're reminded in John 15 that unless we abide in Christ, we'll bear no fruit. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And so the first thing to note about faith is not something we can generate just on our own. Living for God requires the Holy Spirit. And then 1 John chapter 2 goes on to make the same link uh, that Paul is making here in Ephesians, because it goes on to say this, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. And so here we have this link again between faith and living for Jesus and love for one another. And that is seen right throughout Scripture. 
We can't say that I have my faith in God, but I don't love my brothers and sisters in Christ. The fruit of faith, the fruit of real faith, the fruit of being in Christ should be a love for one another. Now again, we're no different from society around us. We all have our struggles, we all have our prejudices, we all have our barriers that we need to break down within ourselves to help us to love one another. And again, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. Almost it's like supernatural faith and supernatural love. We need the help of God to love one another. But actually that help is available to us if we are in Christ. And our model for love is seen in Christ Jesus himself. You know, while we were still God's enemies, Christ loved us and he went to the cross for us. And scripture gives us this kind of radical call, not just to love our neighbor, not just to love those that we get on with, but to love one another in the church and even love our enemies. And that is something that we cannot do without the power of Christ. And so it says, for this reason, ever since I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, there's that idea again of the Lordship of Christ and your love for all God's people, not most of them, all of them, this love that is abounding within the church. Here is Paul, and he has not stopped giving thanks for this community of God. And here is someone who also practices what he preaches. He has a heart for these people, and he is a great man of prayer. And so, there's this commendation for this church at Ephesus. That's really interesting because we can link it in uh, with the series that we've been doing in Revelation. And actually, if we think back pre-Christmas in the Sunday evening services, we were looking at the seven letters to the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation. And we find a letter to this same church in Ephesus. And it says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Same church. Church that's been commended for faith and love. Now we get to Revelation and we're reading these words. And here's this group of people and they're still holding on to truth. They still have faith. And yet they've forsaken some of that love. And the point this morning, very simply, to begin with is this, that faith and love are not something that is static, okay? Your faith and your love are either growing or they're diminishing. It never stands still. You're either growing in Christ, you're either growing in faith and love, or you're diminishing in that faith and in that love. You're either abiding more strongly and firmly in Christ or you're loosening those ties. And that's a challenge for us all this morning. Where are we in that? 
because the corporate love and the corporate faith that we demonstrate is only as strong as we all are individually. In order to be strong as a church, we all need to be rooted in Christ Jesus. Then we go on and we read these words. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people. Wonderful thing about this section, for those of you who like maths and like things kind of formulaic, there's kind of two sets of three things uh, that Paul is saying here. And the first set of three things that he's asking for is revelation, wisdom, and that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. So he's praying for them that they might truly understand and comprehend who they are in Christ and what Christ has done for them. It wouldn't just be head knowledge, but something that would become deep within them. And so the first thing that he prays for is this revelation. We all know what it means to have something revealed to us. We hear some new information, we say, that's a revelation. It's if our eyes that were closed to something before have suddenly been opened. That is the idea here. Why is Paul praying for revelation? Well, he's praying for revelation because in and of ourselves, we can never know God. We cannot know God unless God reveals Himself to us. Uh, we see that in the Old Testament, in many ways, God was veiled from the people. And we read through the Old Testament and we read the prayers of people that they would be able to see God, that they would be able to see the glory of God. That was the prayer. It was almost as if God was kind of hidden from them. Yes, they had the law, they had the prophets, but in many ways, their sight of God was veiled. And then we step into the New Testament and we read these words in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. And the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. So here are the people in the Old Testament. They are struggling to see God, to comprehend who He is. Step into the New Testament when we have the coming of Jesus. And we're told that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Look at Jesus and you can understand who God is. And yet there's still a problem. Because Jesus comes and many miss His identity. Many fail to see who He is. And that is why when speaking to Paul and calling him, it says this in Acts 26 as Paul is telling his testimony. God meets him and says, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, and I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those sanctified by faith in me. We have Jesus. Through looking at Jesus, we can understand who God is. We can see him more clearly. But that requires that there is this kind of spiritual blindness in our lives, and it requires God to come and to move and to open our eyes that the truth of who Jesus is might be revealed to us. And so here is Paul, and he's praying for that revelation. And secondly, briefly, he's praying for that wisdom. Wisdom is not just intelligence, it's not just knowledge, it's not just understanding. It's this idea that we know how to take that knowledge we have and to put it into practice, to live it out. And their knowledge of their identity in Christ, the fact that they are new creations, that has to impact their lives. And Paul is praying for wisdom, that they would understand who they are in Christ and they could begin to live out their new identity in Him. And that was going to be incredibly important as well. You know, it's easy to have a personal relationship with Jesus and to try and work that out. Much harder to try and work it out in community with one another. And yet this is the challenge of Ephesians here. We're going to go on and we're going to look from chapter 4 to 6 about being the body of Christ and what that means once we've understood that Christ is the head over it. And so Paul is praying that they might have wisdom to know how to live out their faith with one another. And then thirdly, he prays that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened. When we see this word heart here, it's not just talking about our emotions. Actually, the word in Greek, it's talking about our whole being, our soul, our thought, our will, and our heart. It's something deep within us. As an interesting aside, often when the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is referring to the heart, it uses a different word. It uses the word bowels. You read through Song of Songs, I think it's chapter 5, and here is this woman and she's waiting for her beloved to come, and he comes to the door and he's trying to get in and she says, my bowels were moved. Maybe that's something you can say during the week to your husband or wife or as a chat up line, you moved my bowels. <laughs> Think about heart. Often that word is used in the Old Testament. But heart here, we need to think of it as a broader thought than normally we do. It is the whole of our soul, our thought, our will, our being. Paul's prayer is that they might discern who Christ is and who they are in Christ, that they would have this spiritual sight, that their eyes would be opened in such a way that that knowledge, it would come and it would change and it would transform them. And that is our prayer, not just to be Christians in label, but that actually Christ and our identity in Christ would change everything. And Paul prays this in order that we might know him better, that we might know God better. 
And we know about knowing people and knowing people. I know the man who works in the spa at the end of the road. He recognizes me, I recognize him, we say hello to one another. But I don't know him. I don't know what he likes and dislikes. I don't know his preferences in life. I don't know the burdens that he carries. I don't know the experiences in his life, positive and negative, that have shaped him. And we think that we can know people, but there is a deeper knowledge and an intimacy, and that is what Paul is talking about here. Here is Paul, this apostle who has encountered Jesus, and in Philippians he prays, I want to know Christ. And we know that God knows us intimately. He knows every hair on our head. That's easier for some people than others for him. But he knows us. He knows us intimately, and his desire is that we might know him intimately. And Paul is praying that we might take that truth of who we know we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. And that might help us to grow in our relationship with Him. And there's three things, again, a set of three things that specifically He asks for. And the first is this, that you might know the hope to which He has called you to. A wonderful phrase, and a reminder that the church is to live in light of eternity, that we are always to keep our eyes on what is to come. Now, it was important for this new community of God's people who felt outnumbered, who felt like the odds were against them, who were being persecuted, and it's like, keep your eyes on me. It's going to be worth it. Keep persevering for me. There's something greater in store. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And in Romans 8, it says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Just this wonderful truth that God has not left us as orphans, that He's gone to prepare a place for us, and He is coming back. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has comprehended what God has in store for those of us who are in Christ and who love Him. And so we're to keep that eternal perspective as God's people. And here is Paul praying that God's people might do that. And secondly, he's praying that they may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And we thought about this idea of inheritance last week and all the blessings uh, that lie in store for us as God's people that should cause us to rejoice. In Christ, we have all things. He has kept nothing back from us. We have a glorious inheritance. Sometimes in this life, we get a bit restless. We're always looking for more. Even as Christians, let's hold our hands up. Sometimes we're a bit restless. But a time will come when we will truly and fully rest in God. And we will share all things. And we will share in the blessings of the kingdom. And most of all, we will share in the blessings of knowing Christ fully. And that is something that we are to hold on to. The third thing that Paul prays 
is that we might know his incomparably great power for us who believe. And this is wonderful. You see his train of thought here. He says, you're waiting for something greater to come. Fix your eyes on that. Be encouraged to keep going. It's going to be worth it. But while you wait, know that you're not alone and know that I have given you my power to help you to live out the Christian life as you wait. And so we read these words. I pray that you would know what his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As we draw things to the close and think about this power, again, there are three things that we note that God's power has established in these verses. And the first thing that God's power has done is that it has raised Christ from the dead. And to that we say hallelujah as we think about taking communion. There is power in Jesus. God has all power. As Jesus died on the cross, there was no power nor authority that could hold him. Sin had no hold on him. Death had no hold on him. And God's power comes and it raises Jesus from the dead. And not only does it raise him from his dead, but that power establishes him. Note the second point, at the right hand of God, over ever power and authority. All power belongs to him. He is above all. There is no power, no dominion, no authority that can come against Jesus that he has not defeated, that he does not have victory over. Everything is subject to him, and that should encourage our hearts this morning. And the third thing that he has established through that power is Christ Jesus to be head over the church. He is head over everything, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Here's the encouragement. Christ is head over the church. And if we are standing in Christ, nothing can come against us. Yes, there are powers and principalities that will wage war against the church, but our victory will be found in standing in Christ. It is Christ that is building His church. And the fullness of Christ fills the church. What a wonderful blessing that is, 
that if we are truly the people of God, if we are truly in Christ, then the fullness of Christ, the fullness of who God is, will fill the church. That as we meet together week by week, that God is here, that He is head over the church, and He blesses the church with all things. And God's power is great, but the wonderful thing is that He gives that power to you and I. That's what the text says. That's what we sang and declared earlier. Same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in me. We fully comprehended that. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in me if I am in Christ. at some of these verses that show what's happening as we go through the New Testament. We discover, first of all, as this word comes to Mary, that Jesus will be born, it says this, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power, the dunamis of God shall overshadow you. The word power and the Bible is dunamis. It's the same as dynamite. It's an explosive power, a dynamic power. And here we see Christ's birth, and we're told that the power of God comes on Mary and overshadows her. And then we see Jesus' ministry. Luke 6, 19, the people all tried to touch Him because power, dunamis, was coming from Him and healing them all. This is the same power that Jesus used in His ministry. Then Jesus calls the twelve disciples together. It says, Luke 9, 1, when Jesus had called the twelve together, He gave them power, dunamis, and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Here is Jesus calling the disciples together, commissioning them for the work, and He's giving them His power and His authority. Acts 1.8, beginning of the early church, you will receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Early church, waiting to live for Christ, waiting for this gift of God's power from the Holy Spirit in order to serve Him. Acts 4.33, we begin reading the story, and it says this, with great power, dunamis, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that all that they were, in all of them, that there were no needy persons among them. They're God's people. They've waited for the power, and now they're living in the power, and God's power is seen through them as they are declaring the wonders of who God is and ministering for Him. Then we read these words in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but He has given us a spirit of power. And as we go through Ephesians in chapter 3, we're going to read these words. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think according to the power dunamis that is at work in us. 
same power that raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at the right hand of God, is available to us. Christ is head of the church. And his heart's desire is that the church might succeed in the great commission that he has called us to. That the church might live for the glory of God. And he's given us a gift in order to do that. That is power. That is power. And so often as a church, we live with a spirit of timidity. But God reminds us that's not his will for us as a people of God. Rather, he has given us a spirit of power and he desires that we live in that. And what is the gateway to knowing God's power? This is the wonderful thing about God's word. What is the gateway to knowing God's power? It's weakness. What a tremendous thing that is. The gateway to knowing God's power is weakness. It's coming and emptying ourselves of all power. Because that's what stops God's power from working, when we think we can do it in our own strength. But actually, when we come and surrender all and say, in and of myself, I am weak. What does God's word say when we are weak? Then we are strong. We want to be a strong church, we need to be a weak church. I.e., we need to throw ourselves onto Christ. And when we do that and when we surrender all, then we'll know in Christ a new power at work within us. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that there is power in the name of Jesus. And we thank you that that same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me, lives in us as a community of God's people, that as we are in Christ, so we have access to your power. And Lord, in our world, so often it seems that the odds are against the church seems so often that we are marginalized, and we are. And yet you have great plans and purposes for your people and for your church. And as we faithfully abide in you, and we acknowledge our weakness before you, and we say that in and of ourselves we cannot do anything, we rejoice that we do not have to have a spirit of timidity, but actually we can have a spirit of power that your power can be seen in and through us in a way that draws attention not to us, but brings all glory and honor to God. Lord, may we abide more faithfully in you. May you, by your Holy Spirit, help us to grow in faith 
and in love, not just for you, but for one another. We thank you that when we are one, that you command a blessing, and we ask that you would make us one in order that we might know your blessing. And we pray that you would be refining us, that we would be discovering more and more who we are in Christ. We pray for that revelation and that wisdom, and for the eyes of our hearts to be opened in order that we might comprehend more fully our identity in you. And we thank you that something great awaits us. But we thank you that we have the blessing of being broken vessels, fragile vessels that are filled with your power and that are to be used in this life to bring you glory and honor wherever you have placed us. May it be so, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen.